Thank you, Dan. Morning, everyone. So we are carrying on our series this morning from Joshua, which is entitled More Than Conquerors. And we've got to the point in Joshua 17, which is just going to come up now, and we're going to read through this passage together. So it's Joshua 17, and I'm going to start reading in verse 14. The people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? We are numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you're so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and Rephites. The people of Joseph replied, the hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have iron chariots, both those in Beth Shan and its settlements, and those in the valley of Jezreel. But Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You're numerous and very powerful. You will have not only one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it, and its furthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have iron chariots, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. So in our journey through Joshua, we've seen them move across the river. They moved into the promised land, and they started to now divide up the land. And actually, there's several passages, several chapters through Joshua, where we read all about that in detail. If you're anything like me, you probably skim fairly quickly through that, because the place names aren't very familiar to us. But what it does allow us to do, um, on the next slide, you can see a map of where God begins to split up those different tribes and and allot the land to them. Now, if you look closely there, you will not see the name of Joseph. So it talks here in this passage that we're talking about the people of Joseph right now. Many of you will be familiar with the song Jacob and Sons, and maybe you're starting to sing through it now and think, oh, I can see Manasseh. Where where does he fit in? Well, the sons of Joseph were actually Manasseh and Ephraim. Okay, so that's the big area in the middle there that has been given to those people. And yet, they're the ones that are coming back to him and saying, well, wait a minute. Why have we not got enough land? Well, actually, they've got a huge amount of land that you can see in the middle there. The problem is that they've not cleared out all the people. There's an element of faith here in terms of the Israelites have moved into the promised land and they begin to divide it up, but they've not actually cleared out everyone yet. They've not conquered the whole land. So there's an element of faith in that. Last week, we looked at at Caleb. And last week, we looked at him at this same period. And when he um, begins to take over the, the, the area of Judah, His response is so different. His response is that, yeah, there might be big cities there, big fortified cities, but if God is with me, I'm going to be able to go and defeat those cities. We contrast that with what we've read this week in the the sons of of Joseph. Instead of having that confidence in God, they're looking at the problems, they're looking at the iron chariots and saying, how on earth can we conquer those? The Perizzites are the people that they're talking about um, in this passage, that they're to go and, and take the land from. This was land that was actually promised to Abraham right back in Genesis 15. So when God made that initial covenant with Abraham, the Perizzites are actually mentioned there in, in Genesis 15. The Perizzites were villagers who lived down in the valley in Jezreel, as it says in this passage, and near the city of Beth Shan. So you can see that kind of circled on the, the map there. 
this is a different stage now. So previously, when they've come across and they've defeated those big cities of Jericho and Ai, those are the big fortified cities. That's the people that they've been kind of taking the land from. Now, this would seem almost like an easier task where they're moving into the valleys to, to villagers, to taking over from them. But the villagers have this additional technology. They've got iron chariots. And the, and the Israelites see the iron chariots, and once again, they're afraid and don't want to go there. And this is what's leading then to the trouble where they've not got enough space for all their people. The valley, the area that, the area that they're in there, is the fertile land. It's the land flowing with milk and honey that God has promised to them. And by not taking it, they're, they're storing up problems for themselves. The tragedy is, and we don't see it in this passage, Joshua again encourages them in this passage that although they've got iron chariots, our God is bigger and that we can still go and take this land that he's promised to us. But the tragedy is that they, they never do that. And what we lead later on in, in Judges by, by the first chapter in Judges, which comes immediately after Joshua, we begin to see that they're living with these people rather than clearing them out, and they're beginning to intermarry. By, verse, by, by chapter 3 sorry, of, of Judges, they're not just intermarrying, but they're beginning to worship their gods. And then by chapter 5, it's got to the stage that God is no longer um, being worshipped. He's no longer the God of Israel. And he, he allows then the neighbors to come and start taking land back off them. The tragedy is that when we don't follow God, when we don't do what he's asking us to do, then we begin to lose ground. And it can have consequences for a long time. When I look at chapters like this, I'm always amazed because it's like it comes on the back of all these victories that we've read about in the preceding chapters. It comes on the back of the fact that they've previously come through the Red Sea, they've come across the desert, they've then, Jesus has, or God has, has parted the, the Jordan, they've been able to go into the land, the walls of Jericho have fallen down before them, all these miracles after miracles where, where God has been with them. And yet, they can look at the things of this world and take their eyes off it. It's easy to kind of criticize the Israelites, but we can be so like that as well. As British people, we're pretty good at morning as well. A number of years ago, we, we lived in China, and we were fortunate enough um, during the, the Christmas break that it was actually cheaper and, and easier to get to, to places like Thailand and go for a nice warm holiday over Christmas rather than come back to the UK. So one year we went to, to Thailand, and it, it was amazing. We landed, in, I think it was about the 23rd. On, the, on Christmas Eve, we had a, a really nice uh, party on the beach, on Christmas Day, Santa came in a, in a little boat, a speedboat, looking very sweaty in his uh, <laughs> suit that was designed for a, a, a slightly colder climate. And then on in Christmas afternoon, we had our, our turkey, and uh, we, as you can see, Josiah there, we, uh, we can't quite make it out, but we, we got to, to wash our turkey down with, with fresh coconuts. So a slightly different Christmas, it was, but it was beautiful, it was really restful, really peaceful. Then on, on Boxing Day, things changed slightly. A, a Thompson's package holiday turned up from the UK. And suddenly, the sand was too gritty. The service was far too slow in all the restaurants. The weather was too hot. Not very comfortable here. The coffee wasn't nice enough. There was no Weedabix for breakfast. That was probably my complaint, actually, rather than... 
rather than theirs. As British people, we really noticed it there, the, the change of, of the whole atmosphere. And this is the, the, the culture that we can live in ourselves as well. Caleb, as we looked at last week, was countercultural. He was someone that didn't go along with the, the kind of moaning and the complaining and the pessimism of those around him. And we see that so much when the 10 spies were, were sent out, as Dan talked about last week, or the 12 were sent out in total. Caleb chose to be positive and see that God could conquer the land, the other 10 less so. John Golingay is a, a British Bible scholar who now lives in America. And when we reflecting about that passage, he says that, that Caleb is probably more like the Americans that are around him now than, than the British people. The British people are more like the, the ten who look at the problems and say, we can never conquer this land. It's too hard. We're not going to be able to do it. Actually, and he makes a point there as well that, that, that Caleb was not an Israelite, he was a Kenizzite, so he came actually from a different, different culture. But so often when we get immersed into a culture, we begin to take on the things of that culture. And that's, again, what we see is we, we lived abroad for a number of years. When we came back, we found we'd, we'd changed. We were different people. We didn't expect to have this kind of reverse culture shock, but suddenly you do because you've changed as you've been immersed in a new culture. Caleb was different not because he was a Kenesite. Caleb was different because he had a different spirit in him. In Numbers 14, God says, My servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him, has followed me fully. Therefore, I will bring him into the land. Caleb had a different spirit. He was countercultural. He didn't get affected by those around him. He didn't get affected by what he saw. Instead, he kept his eyes focused on who God is. He saw that God was bigger than all those things. He saw that God was able to overcome the difficulties. It's so important that we remember to look at God and what he's done and give thanks for it. The people who were moaning and complaining on that holiday that we were on, it was almost like they, they didn't see all the good things. They were missing out on the holiday because they were focusing on the little things that were bad and they were missing all the, the amazing things that were actually so good. And Joshua knew this. You know, the first thing he did when they crossed over the River Jordan, the first thing they did was to lay down these 12 stones to remember exactly what God had done because he knew that as, as humans we have this short memory. We begin to forget what God's done in the past. And so he lays down these stones to remind them about how God parted the Red Sea and parted the River Jordan to take them into that land in the first place. Psalm 42, the psalmist is going through a difficult time. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. And he goes through pouring out his soul to God and he says, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will praise him yet, my Savior and my God. He has this conversation with his soul. He realizes that his soul's getting downcast and he begins to then lead into a conversation with God as to why this is the case, and then to praise God, to lift his eyes again to the heaven. When we begin to have those moments where we are having difficult times and we realize that it's affecting our soul and it's blocking off our communication with God, it's so important to start having that conversation 
again with our soul and understand what's going on. Why so downcast, my soul? Why am I feeling this way? Why am I feeling angry? Why am I feeling pessimistic? Why am I moaning? For some of us, there's, there's different things we can do to put our focus back on God. Um, recently, I went for a walk with uh, Fraser. We went and climbed the, the, the path of Glencoe. And the song that kept on going through my, my mind as we did that was the, the song that we sang this morning, the first one. Oh, Lord, my God, and when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hand have made. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. As we begin to, for, for me, one of the things I can do is begin to see God's beauty in his creation. And as I do that, I take my eyes off the things that are problematic and begin to focus and worship on God again. At other times, it may be putting on a, a worship, I almost said a worship tape, um, probably not a tape these days, <laughs> putting on some worship music, picking up iTunes, whatever it is. Listening to testimony for others, listening to what God has done in the past, reminding ourselves coming through the Bible, reading through it, being inspired again by the word of God, or simply lifting our hearts in prayer. So many of the Psalms are so real, and that's why I love them. When when you hear the language they use, they're having this conversation with God, which says things are so hard, but it always comes back to the point, God, you're the one who gives us hope, even though those things are hard. So what has God called us to do as a church? Luckily, we have not been called to, to go and take over the valleys in the same way. But we have been given the, the, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking a lot about church planting, and Dan just mentioned the, the day of prayer that's coming up for that, that soon. And church planting can be really exciting, but it can also be really scary as well. There's probably not any iron chariots in the Lothians. I've certainly not come across them yet. Actually, I think these days you don't, you don't need an iron chariot. You just need a young Scott card and the, and the number 47 bus. And apparently you can take that into battle. There's no iron chariots in the Lothians, but it is hard work. Back in um, 2002, I was living in Coventry and, and going to church there. And we planted a church down into to Leamington Spa. Um, and there was only 20 of us at the time, and it was really hard work. We went from this point of being a, a larger church where there's lots of people kind of doing lots of things, and then suddenly you've only got 20 of you, and you've all got to try and uh, pick up things that you've not done in the past. I was happy to help out in whatever way I asked. And for a couple of times, I, I led worship, and then they said to me, thanks, Steve, we'll maybe not get you to do that again. <laughs> Other things were slightly more successful. So I led um, alpha courses, small groups, I preached for the first time. And just in, even on a Sunday morning, you, you kind of, if, if someone brings a word, you know, like a, a tongue or something like that, then there's only 20 of you there. So someone's got to interpret it, right? When you're in a church plant, you've got to rely on the Spirit of God much more. You can't go in your own strength. You can't rely on Dan or someone else to get this one. You've kind of got to go all in. It's an amazing time of growth where God takes these kind of nascent giftings that we bring 
and he blows fire on them and he grows them and they can thrive. easy to look at the difficulties. It's hard work. What if it doesn't work? What if people reject us? What if we don't manage to to be successful? It's easy to look at things that have gone wrong in the past and think, I don't want to go into that situation again. We're in a nice, comfortable building here where everything's kind of set up for us. But there's so many positives. We got to the point after three or four years of fairly hard work and fairly slow growth that we'd, we'd doubled in size, so we now had 40, very small still, but we were a lot bigger than we were. And the amazing thing was that of that doubling in size, about 50% of that growth had been people that either had not been going to church and had kind of fallen away, or people that had made a commitment for the first time and become Christians. As you go into church planting, you begin to see God's kingdom grow. You begin to see people coming to know Jesus for the first time. And you begin to hunger that and for, for that in a, in a much bigger way because you are so small a number to start with. I love the, the testimonies that, that Peter Anderson brought recently when he did our um, kind of leaders training day that he did here. He was talking about his experience now and here in, in Edinburgh and the, the church planting that, that they've done and the amazing things that, that, that God has done through that in our city. And it makes me hungry to see more of that happening. One of the things he talked about at that point was he likes to, when God starts talking to him about a new area where God wants him to plant a church, then he begins to prayer walk around that area with some friends. And I think it's almost similar to what we see in this passage here, where Joshua's beginning to divide out the land, this land that they've not fully taken, where there still is a lot of work to do. But God's beginning to divide that out very specifically and say, this is your land, go and take it. And Peter Anderson begins to do the same thing. He walks around those areas and he begins to pray it into being. I've not got my church here yet. It's not land that you've given me yet. But I'm going to. I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to believe that this is where you're taking us. He's lifting his eyes to heaven again. He's remembering the promises and he's praying those promises into being. In New Frontiers, we've got a real heritage of church planting. So we look at um, the, the time, I remember Stonely in 2001, the, this whole message of let's go. And it was, uh, it was the last time we had the Stonely Bible Festival where all the New Frontiers churches got together. And I remember hearing about a number of people that were going to move from Newcastle to, to plant a church up in Edinburgh. And that was obviously my, my home country, although I was, I was living down south at the time. And I was excited to hear that New Frontiers was, was making its way up to Scotland. But that was, that was kind of 20 years ago, and it's amazing to see what God has done, but we mustn't settle and think that this is it. In some ways, I think it's, it's really similar to this passage that we've looked at today, where the tribes of Joseph, they, they've taken the, the fortified cities, so we're in Edinburgh now, the big fortified city, but God's asking them to move now into the valleys, the next stage, not to settle where they are, but to start moving on to the next phase and carry on the work that's been done in the past. So many times when you look at church history, the first generation are the pioneers when God's spirit moves, when a new movement happens. The first generation are the pioneers. The second generation start to settle. And then the third generation, you see the regress. And that's exactly what we see in this passage, where that second generation are starting to to settle, and the third generation are the ones that start to regress and worship other gods. 
I don't want that to happen. I want to be the people that, that stand on the shoulders of our fathers, that learn from what they fought for and take it to the next steps. The people like, like Caleb, who was prepared to see beyond the problems and beyond to the um, challenges in front of him and, and take it on to the next level. So what has God called you to do specifically? We've been looking at, at church planting and the fact that as we move into that, then each of us has to bring our own giftings and, and begin to work into the things that called us, God has called us to do. The singer Meatloaf very famously sang a song, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. If you're taking notes today, don't, don't write that down. <laughs> What was Steve talking about on Sunday? Well, meatloaf mainly. Meatloaf realized that there was a limitation to what he would do for love. I won't do that. He doesn't actually specify what he won't do, but he realized that there was this limitation that he wouldn't go beyond. And we contrast that. Recently we sang that great song by, by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And he sings, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul. My all. But I won't do that. <laughs> the, the response is the other way around, isn't it? So the response is to God's love, to, to what God has done for us on that, that, that wondrous cross. And that's where the, the response comes from. And when I sang that, I was really actually challenged at the time. Can I really honestly say that I'm willing to give my life, my soul, my all? Or am I more like meatloaf where there's this limitation I won't do that. Jesus calls us to, to look at what are the limitations to our current faith, acknowledge them, and then begin to move beyond that by his help. Where are your lines in the sand currently? Where are the things where you've kind of laid down and say, I won't do that? I was again really challenged when we had Phil and Sarah here on the church weekend away. And they were talking about how they'd given up everything. They'd moved to Rotterdam as a step of faith. And they didn't have a house yet. And they didn't have um, a church. And they didn't have a finance secured or, or anything, really. But yet they were prepared to, to go and do that. And I thought, that's way beyond my, my faith limit. They were, they were living out that song, demands my life, my soul, my all. And they were prepared to, to go full in. Whenever we've moved, and we've moved a number of times, then it's, it's always been with this acknowledgement that we know exactly where our finance is coming from, that we know where we're going to live when we get there and so on. They are prepared to go that, that step further. For, for other people, you know, there might be other things, maybe talking to colleagues about Jesus, sharing your faith at work. Maybe bringing a word at the front of church when, when God prompts you during worship. Maybe helping in kids' church. That's probably the scariest of all. <laughs> don't exclude yourselves when God calls you to do something God backs that up by giving you the ability to do it by, through his spirit and that's been my experience so many times recently with work I had to do one of those uh, personality profile tests so you know they're, they're kind of like a cosmopolitan quiz where you go through and you tick the different boxes and you say 
uh, what each one is, and then you add up the total at the end, and it tells you, it puts you in a little box and tells you what you are. So I'm, I'm a reforming observer, you'll be, you'll be glad to know. And one of the downsides of a reforming observer, apparently, I was told, is that they don't seek out new opportunities. So they're so analytical and cautious in their, their kind of mindset with thinking everything through that they can get really stuck in their ways. Back in 2010, before we had Fraser and Josiah, God spoke a, a word over Hannah and myself. So someone actually came to our church that didn't know us at all. And he, he prophesied over us for 25 minutes. We've got a recording of it. And it was um, just amazing that, that God knew us and was able to tell this guy all about us and exactly how we were and, and what he was going to do through us. And one of the things that he said then, we'd been living in Leamington, or I'd been living in Leamington for 10 years by this time, and very much part of uh, you know, the, the, the church there that we'd, we'd planted and grown. And he said, God has given you a heart for the nations. You're going to move a lot. So living in the same place for 10 years. But God, I'm a reforming observer. I don't seek out new opportunities. I'm too analytical and cautious for that. Since then, we've moved house seven times. And we've lived in three different countries. When God, and we've loved it, actually. It's been amazing. When God comes and speaks to you, he gives you what you need to be able to do that. I don't know what things have been spoken over you. It feels like we're putting so many labels on things these days. And we're, we're putting people in boxes like this, this whole kind of reforming observer thing. We don't have to be in those boxes when God speaks over us. Moses, just before we, this passage in, in Joshua, just before this whole kind of phase of the Israelites, Moses was obviously their leader. And we remember in Exodus 4, his response when God calls him to lead his people into the promised land, his response is, pardon your servant, Lord, excuse me. I'm, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. That's how Moses self-declared himself to, to, Lord, to, to God. You've got the wrong person here. Pardon me, God. Just after this, in, in Judges 6, the first person that's, that's kind of led to lead the Israelites again and take, them, take the land back off the Midianites is, is Gideon. And when God comes to Gideon, he calls him a mighty warrior and says that he's going to use him to defeat the, the Midianites. And Gideon says, pardon me, Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So often I think we can look at ourselves like that. We can look at ourselves and think, I'm weak. I've not got giftings. I'm not like Dan. I'm not like Luke. But God calls us, and God gives us the giftings that we need. The difference, again, with Caleb was that he had that spirit of God within him, where he was able to look beyond his own abilities, beyond what was going on in the land at that time, and say, my God is bigger. We're entering a new phase as a church, a new phase where we're beginning to, to look at church planting. Maybe you've ruled yourself out. Maybe you feel settled in the current location with the things that are happening here. Maybe you don't feel that God has got those giftings for you. I want to encourage you this morning that God is greater, that God has plans and purpose for all of us, 
over and above what we're doing today. I'm not going to be like meatloaf and say, I won't do that. Instead, I want to acknowledge, like Isaac Watts, the power of the cross, the power of God's Spirit within us that allows us to do all things for him. Let's just stand before God. I'm going to pray. Yeah, Lord, I just want to apologize for times when I've looked at the things around me and been put off, been put off doing something that you've called me to do. Lord, I thank you that you are bigger, that you are greater than all the things in this world, that he that is within us is greater than he that is in the world. Lord, we don't come in our own confidence, but we come in confidence at who you are and at what you can do through us. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. And I just pray, Lord, that you would come. Come and pour out your spirit afresh this morning. Give us a fresh excitement, Lord, where we've been looking at things and being worried about what might happen if we go church planting. Lord, give us instead an excitement, an excitement that your kingdom will come. Your kingdom will be established here in Scotland. Your kingdom will advance into the Lothians and beyond. I thank you, Lord. I thank you for what you're going to do. Come, Lord, pour out your spirit. Grow new giftings in us, Lord. Give us strength. Give us boldness. Thank you, Lord.